You know, one of the greatest examples of this, which is more broadly, uh, broad than just us here, is Abraham Lincoln gets praised for the Emancipation Proclamation. That became law uh, on January 1st uh, in 1863. A week before that was the largest mass execution in the history of the United States. 38 Dakota were hung in Mankato, Minnesota, on one massive gallows. The execution order was signed by Abraham Lincoln. That execution took place the day after Christmas in 1862. The idea that we can talk about the Emancipation Proclamation and ignore the fact that a week prior to that, 38 Dakota were hung by the neck. And they were hung for fighting back on the Homestead Act that Lincoln signed into law in the beginning of 1862. So if you're only going to talk about the Sioux Wars mm-hmm. or the Lakota Wars or the Plains Indian the fight and not understand what the fight was over, if you're, if you're going to only frame Lincoln as the emancipator and not frame him as the executioner, he signed the execution order for the largest mass execution in the history of the United States. And there's example after example after example. My name is Leo WT, and you have found your way to the Conversations Podcast. Conversations exist to create spiritually-minded conversations about life. We desire to create safe space for dialogue and community. We desire to come together regularly and intentionally to generate conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. Everyone is welcome. Hey, friends. Hi, how are you? It is Leo WT here with Conversations Podcast. I know it's been a minute since you all have seen me, but we're back. Never fear. I have been here all along, um, simply working on grad school while also running a salon, while also running a small business, while also trying to be a human, um, and also trying to facilitate uh, spiritually minded conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. So we are here with what I would consider to be a really pressing and current issue that I want to talk about. Um, and I was lucky enough to find someone who is who is knowledgeable, has lived experience, and a book experience and all of the knowledge to bring to this topic. So um, we're going to be talking today specifically about the Seneca Nation um, and their, you know, the ruling that's been issued recently by the state of New York, which is like little more than blackmail of the Seneca Nation. But I want to, my goal for this conversation is to develop a knowledge or a level of competence with understanding what our Seneca brothers and sisters are going through so that we can be better allies and be more informed. I know um, we live, you know, in Olean, we live close to a reservation, but we know so little about it. And it's my goal to hope to, to be the best ally I can be. And part of that starts by just upping our knowledge content um, on what it means to be native in the world that we live in right now. So with that in mind, I have a fantastic guest who I'm, I've already been chatting with and I'm actually really excited to uh, turn the mic over to him, but I'm gonna let my friend introduce himself real quick uh, and then we'll dive into the topic. So take it away, John. All right, my name is John Kane. My Mohawk name is Gardio. Um, I am Mohawk or Gunyagahaga. I live on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. My wife is Oneida or Onyotaaga. And like I said, we live on the territories of Seneca Nation or Onondawaga. Um, I've lived here for over 20 years, close to 30, I guess, at this point. Um, and I've been involved in much of the conversations that, uh, that the Senecas have been confronted with over the years over things like taxation and tobacco and fuel and uh, you know, any number of things. 
and I've been, um, you know, I've been made very aware of the situation involving Seneca Gaming, and I followed this you know, quite a bit. I've been a, kind of an open critic to their their gaming compact, which there's not a Seneca alive who doesn't know that their their compact is uh, has is not a good one. Um, so, um, but like I said, I, I do live here in Seneca territory. I don't speak for the Seneca Nation. Um, I will say that I think my voice on the issue is appreciated. And oftentimes I feel like I can speak more candidly because I'm not, um, I don't have a political agenda here. I don't even have a dog in the fight. I don't, I don't collect any money off of the casinos. Uh, I'm not a gambler, um, but I am a defender of native people. And where, when things like this happen, there's oftentimes a certain amount of infighting that takes place and I won't participate in that. Um, I have my criticisms uh, of some of the, you know, the, the conversations I've heard from individuals and some of the decisions that have been made, but I'm not going to attack the Seneca nation because the real culprits here are New York state and the federal government. Uh, most of the time it's the federal government that either is complicit with some of what the, the state has done to native people, or certainly for you know, considering the United States claims to have some sort of trust responsibility to Native people, um, there is no trust. And and I will say that just to explain that that uh, uh, that phrase, it isn't trust as a virtue. They believe that they are our trustees, as if they are our custodians. We are the wards of the state, and you know that would make us pretty abused children if uh, if we were to accept that terminology, which we don't. Um, so uh, yeah, so. I my criticisms are always going to lie with the state and the federal governments, and and it's not to say that we couldn't do better, and and we should, and and I don't mean I just mean, mean we in terms of native people, um, but you know I I do the deep dive. I've read the compact. I've read some of the legal uh, proceedings, and I I understand the nature of of the business and competition and exclusivity and all that stuff. So. Um, I can bring into a conversation what perhaps um, other people can't or, or, be, or because there is a diplomatic mission, mission always at stake here with the Senecas as they begin to engage New York, New York State um, to enter into a new compact, which is required by the, by the federal statute, uh, which, which, which this one ends in 2023. So at the start of 2024, there's supposed to be another compact in place. So I can speak a little bit more candidly because I'm not at that table. And, uh, and I am neither trying to um, steer that conversation nor um, drown out any of the conversation, but I do speak so, uh, so both native and non-native Seneca and non-Seneca people can at least hear what I'm saying and make their own judgments based on uh, my voice being a part of what is out there in the ether. Absolutely. And I really appreciate that. I think that is something that I've learned um, throughout, you know, my experience of, of coming out of the sort of conservative Christian environment that I came in into my understanding of myself as a non-binary person of trans experience, into my understanding of myself as a person who um, cares about religion and spirituality, but understands that I don't fit in traditional boxes. Um, when you, I feel like when you come out and you realize that you are part of a marginalized population, 
it becomes almost a personal value to be able to speak up and, and be a voice and a placeholder when other marginalized folks can't for whatever reason, right? And it's never my goal to talk over anybody else, but it is my goal to keep the conversation in the public sphere as much as possible. And so I'm really grateful for your expertise and your perspective, uh, especially as a Native person, right? You're going to understand things like, while you are not Seneca and you don't try to speak for them, you're able to bring this conversation to a wider audience because you don't have to deal um, with any sort of other ramifications. You're not trying to handle a situation with kid gloves. You're just able to speak about it. And I'm, I'm very grateful for your candor and for your knowledge because it's just something that in order to be a better ally, I need to know so much more than I do. Um, and and this, sort of, this sort of gaming situation really is what I think has pushed the conversation to a social forefront as much as as much as it can. Um, because, you know, like Western New York, like we love the bills. We've had a great season. Um, we we dig that, like it's a thing, right? But now all of a sudden in Western New York, I, at least for me, I'm seeing like I, I dig the bills, but I can't I can't get with a new stadium being built on the backs of native people whose land we've already stolen and whose culture we've already tried to wipe out. You know what I mean? It makes me feel honestly sort of a certain level of shame to even to even like like football or like the bills or talk about a new stadium. And I think that this this you know particular news sound bite really brings this conversation to the forefront. Um add that there are many people who don't like the idea that a stadium would be built on the backs of the taxpayer for that matter either. So yeah. you know although what's what the Senecas went through in this um, in this fight and, and in this strategy is problematic for the Senecas. I think everybody in New York, I mean, look, do you remember when, when New York state put $2 billion up to keep uh, the keep a stadium in New York for further two um, New York city teams? No, yep. you don't remember that because it didn't happen. Those two teams play New Jersey. So, you know, the downstate crowd was not so beholding to the NFL that they were willing to put up money and they could have built one stadium for two teams and they didn't do it. Yep. And they have a bigger market than the, than Buffalo does. And they didn't do it. Yep. So the idea that, that the current unelected governor, Kathy Hochul tried to pull a fast one with, uh, with, you know, extorting money out of the Seneca's and say, Oh, don't worry downstate. We got it covered here. We're going to take the money that would have gone to the state education and all kinds of other things that the gaming dollars was going to go to and we're going to put it in the in uh, into the bill stadium in some hope that she was going to somehow become a hometown hero being from you know western new york and you know take this money you know from the senecas and then put it into a stadium where the senecas get no credit for it whatsoever Exactly. None, none whatsoever. I mean, not even so much as an acknowledgement, right? And it's working. So in my mind, like working backwards logically, there what's happening right now is absolute blackmail of of the of the Seneca Nation, a hundred percent. But how did like how did we even get to this point? Because it seems to me like this is an incredibly egregious thing that in no way, by no sort of justification, should be possible. But somehow we got to a point where New York State's like, "Yep, we're doing it." Like how how did we get? This is a long, this is a long story, but I'm I'm willing to tell it. So I'm here for it. All right. So the Senecas um, by un, to open up gaming under the. Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, the underlying federal statute, 
one of the re early requirements in that statute uh, say that the, the nation, Seneca Nation, has to enter into a gaming compact with the state of New York. Now, that gaming compact details some shared responsibility on the, regula the regulatory functions uh, that the state may have towards uh, on gaming. So it gives the state some ability to be involved in the regulatory structure of, the, uh, of you know, native gaming, states in general. Um, so, they, so they negotiate a bunch of terms associated, associated with that, what kind of gaming is going to take place and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but there's no requirement in the law that the state, um, or that there has to be revenue sharing. In fact, there's actually a prohibition. It says that the state cannot tax or charge or <clears throat> force a fee of any kind on the native gaming operation. They are forbidden from doing it. Interesting. Now, but they can offer something in exchange for some consideration. Hmm. And that's called the concession from the state in lieu of revenue sharing. The way the Interior Department has defined what is legal in terms of revenue sharing is that the state must concede something that is of substantial benefit to the gaming operation in exchange for revenue sharing. And that something has to be both substantial, as I said, and quantifiable. And it must also meet or exceed the value of the revenue that is shared with them. Otherwise, it's not a benefit to the business. It's a cost to the business. Mm -hmm. So that is the requirement by law and, and the requirement by the federal agency, if you want to call it that, uh, charged with the enforcement and the regulatory oversight of, uh, of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, and that would be the Interior Department. So in 2002, what the state offered in this compact was dubbed an exclusivity zone. And that exclusivity zone included... I want to say, I think it was 15 counties um, of Western New York from, from the other side of Rochester to the lake. Okay. And, and so that's the exclusivity zone. What the state offered was, when on the first read, when you read it through the, the main body, the main text of the compact says, we're offering exclusivity for electronic gaming machines. Mm -hmm. And then it says, see appendix such and such, right? But when you get into the minutia, you realize what, what the state was really offering was only an exclusivity on class three slot machines. Okay. And, and so what the, what the state was offering was we will not allow anyone ourselves through licensing or anybody else to put class three slot machines in service in your exclusivity zone. Okay. And so that was the exclusivity. Now, the problem with that is in 2002, the state couldn't put slot machines anywhere anyway. Right. They were prohibited by law. Yeah, they, yeah. The New York State Constitution forbid or forbade, I guess, um, class three gaming machines. Mm -hmm. So what they offered was something they, you know, they offered a prohibition that they couldn't do anyway. And they couldn't. So class three gaming was illegal in New York State until the end of 2023, mm -hmm. at which time the state having milked the Seneca Nation's gaming uh, operation and, uh, and watched the Senecas build a gaming market and soften up their constituency, was finally able to go through two successive state legislatures and a public referendum 
to change their state constitution to allow the state to do classroom gaming in three sites with the possibility of expanding that uh, down the road. So it wasn't until 2023 that the state could even authorize any kind of classroom gaming. And it wouldn't be until 2017 that the first casino, state licensed casino would open up. And that one of those first casinos is actually in the Seneca market. It's not in the exclusivity zone. It's just on the edge of it. It's on the other side of Rochester. It's called the Lago. You may have heard of it. And that casino advertises throughout Western New York. It, uh, it advert, you know, and it's got Rochester right there in its doorstep. And it, it really, it advertises on all the television, all the radio stations here in Western New York. So it is clearly in the Seneca's gaming market. So, clearly. so, so, and that didn't open up until 2017. So essentially the 14 years that exclusivity payments were supposed to be made ended in 2016. Mm-hmm. So for 14 years, the Seneca's paid as much as 25% of the net slot drop, which translates by the way, to almost 50% of the net revenue, 25% of the net slot drop. In case you don't know what that means, this isn't a normal accounting term. This is a <laughs> net slot drop means all the money taken into a slot machine minus the payout. The next sum of money is the 25% that the state takes off the top. The 75% that the Senate has got to keep, they have to, they have to run a casino on that. They have to pay every employee. Yeah. They have to pay every contractor. They gotta, they've got to pay for the financing that they, you know, to build these facilities. Mm-hmm. Out of their 75%, they've got to co- cover all of the overhead. And it's, it's also worth noting that among almost the entire sole source of public finance for the Seneca Nation comes from gaming. I mean, yes, they do have some stores and stuff like that, and they do, and those are profitable. But the the bulk and the overwhelming and vast majority of the public uh, source of public finance is native gaming. So, out of their seventy five percent, they got to cover all of the operation, everything from the machines to the cocktail waitresses and waiters, and the you know the slot attendants and the replacement of the carpet every so often, and you know all the renovations and all the things. And if you've gone into the, any of these facilities, you realize that the I mean, these are world-class facilities. Yeah. You know, any standard in Western New York, there's no place you're going to walk into and see see a facility of any type, any type of hospitality that yeah. shines what the Senecas have built. In many ways, many of us think they overbuilt it. They overbuilt it for the market, as far, right. as, as, far as many of us are concerned. Um, but regardless, they have now they've got to maintain that and they've got to keep building and and they've they've added uh, hotel rooms and swimming and spas and and all kinds of other stuff. Over, over the years, and all of that gets covered out of their 75%. So, so that's, the, that's the way it was drafted. Now, along the way, though, there were some problems. I mean, because even though it was very specific that the, um, what the state was offering was, was an exclusivity on only class three gaming, you have to consider what is the value of what they offered. In order to stay legal within the definitions prescribed by the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and the Interior Department, the value of that exclusivity has to meet or exceed what they're receiving. Mm-hmm. And that was never the case. The Senecas were always paying far more than was ever anticipated in these various 18, 22, and 25%. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the value of the exclusivity became diminished because, first off, the Seneca, the, the state was still doing gaming. They had lotteries, and as you may well recall, they've had an ever-expanding 
library of scratch offs and, uh, and different kinds of lottery games from quick draw, otherwise known as crack draw, uh, to lotto and, you know, and super lotto and all of, they, they've got they, they expanded their lottery in the Seneca's market, by the way. But, but that, you know, that wasn't a violation of the compact. But by taking any piece of market share from the Seneca's, it diminished what the value of that exclusivity was. And they didn't yeah. stop there. They actually turned three of the racetracks that are in the Seneca's exclusivity zone. That would be Hamburg Fairgrounds, which is it's a fairgrounds, but it was it's qualifies as a, as a racetrack uh, among the, the New York State's failing horse horse racing industry. So Hamburg Fairgrounds, Batavia Downs and Finger Lakes uh, Downs, those three racetracks, the state turned those failing racetracks into casinos and they actually called them that they called them casinos and they advertised up and down the thruway and the um uh as well as uh the interstate 80, 86 and, and other places that they had slot machines at their racetrack casinos mm-hmm. now well, well how could they have slot machines well <laughs> interesting <laughs> they managed to see the technology change in terms of electronic gaming machines to the point where they could produce a machine that looked and played just like a class three slot machine, but stayed just this side of the class uh, of the class three designation. So they were class two machines. And the only way that they were different is essentially how they were linked to each other um, and how, the, how the, the payouts were banked essentially. But mm-hmm. as the average player, you put money in it, you put your dollar bills, your $20 bills in it. And if you won, you got out a receipt and you cash that out, just like in the casino, just like in the Seneca casinos. So they built these three uh, horse racing tracks into casinos and the Seneca's cried foul. So mm-hmm. in about in around 2010, the Seneca's stopped paying then. Mm-hmm. In fact, by 2013, they had put $600 million into an escrow account pending resolution of this, uh, of this conflict. And, mm-hmm. and while many said, well, the state was violating the compact. I don't, I don't think that was the argument. I think they, they violated the spirit of exclusivity and they certainly had diminished the value of what exclusivity was by continuing to take market share away from Seneca's. Now we could argue, did lotteries really take market share away from the Seneca's? Well, there's only a certain amount of gaming dollars available. So I'd say yes, but there's no question that Hamburg fairgrounds, Batavia downs and finger lakes. They, they, they put slot parlors up and that's what, so they clearly were taking market share and the Seneca's, you know, their, their bottom line, their accounting, their records show, you know, every time the state increased the amount of machines they had, the, the, the drop that they had. And mm-hmm. now the Seneca's were still making money the whole time. And, and I don't want anybody to think that the Seneca's lost money, but they did lose market share. And, but all along, all the while, they, they, they've been paying until this period from about 2010 to 20, uh, 2013. Mm-hmm. And, and now, the state is getting a little desperate here because the state really wants to, they've already passed two successive state legislatures mm-hmm. and they have to go to public referendum. They wanted to have this revenue sharing thing resolved before they went to the public. Otherwise, they were gonna ha- it was going to be a hard sell. Right. So they pressed the Senecas to resolve this. They didn't take them to arbitration. They didn't, they didn't go to binding, unappealable arbitration in 2013. But uh, Cuomo said, make an offer so the seneca said we keep 200 million we give you 400 million hmm. which to me was still a generous offer mm-hmm. and, and the governor said sold we're done yep <laughs> cut the check you keep 200 million um 
and, and the Seneca's took that as a victory. They said, look, we, we punished the state to the tune of a third of what we had uh, held in, uh, in the escrow account. But what they didn't do, they didn't reduce the percentage that they were paying. They didn't go from 25% down to 15%. Mm-hmm. They kept paying at the 25%. And here's the reason why. In 2013, they viewed this as a bit of a victory, demonstrating that the, that the state had essentially violated at least the, the spirit of the agreement. They had reduced the value of the exclusivity, and they felt, we'll pay this thing out through 2016, which is when the 14-year period of the, the initial period of the compact um, uh, was in place. It was a, it was a 14-year um, compact with a renewal, a seven-year renewal period that could happen if neither side wanted any changes in the language. Mm-hmm. So the Seneca said, we'll pay this thing out through 2016 and then we're done. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they did. So in 2016, uh, the, the last payment at the end of 2016 went out and, and then no more payments came. And New York State said, New York State said, wait a second, you guys have to pay us. Now I wanna say something here, Niagara Falls knew and it asked the governor, you know, there's no language in this thing about uh, payments past, uh, past 2016. And the governor said, don't worry about it. We're going to make them pay. I mean, that was the, I mean, he, he basically blew off any concern that the language wasn't there. So um, the Seneca's stopped paying and that money accumulated. Now, of course, COVID happens and everything else, the money, there isn't quite the market share and, you know, the, and the gaming revenue that there was. But in, you know, up until just last month, over almost 600 million, but I'd say $560 million accumulated into, into account. Now, the Seneca still put the money aside, mm-hmm. although they, they claim they didn't need to, but they, they, they told the state, look, anymore. And so the state took them to, to, to that. Now, this time, the state said, we are taking you to arbitration. And they took them to the binding, unappealable arbitration. So how arbitration works is three judges are selected. The Seneca's got to pick a judge, and they picked a guy by the name of Kevin Washburn. Kevin Washburn was a former assistant secretary to the Interior Department. He was the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. He's Chickasaw um, and knows gaming pretty well. So he was the, the judge that the, the Seneca selected. The, and I don't know the names of the other two guys, but the, the state selected one. And then those two judges got to confer on who the third judge would be. So you have one guy who's native, but very much a governmental guy, and two guys who are non-native, two, two white guys that were on the arbitration panel. And he really, the, the Senecas thought they had a slam dunk here. I mean, by, by every legal analysis, there's no language that talked about payment through the seven-year period that started in 2017 that goes through, through 2023, the period we're in right now. There's no language in the the initial compact that talks about payments beyond 14 years none mm-hmm. so there's a thing called the four corners doctrine of contract law and that says if it ain't within the four corners of the paper it ain't in there you yeah. can't you can't say well it was implicit no it has to be explicit it has to be in there mm-hmm. and the two white guys on this arbitration panel argued well but it's ambiguous and the problem with ambiguity is in order for ambiguity to exist in a contract, there has to be language that is unclear, not the absence of language. Right, right, right. Absence of language is an ambiguity. The absence of language says nobody, nobody negotiated to put that language in there. Yep. So the Seneca's felt like they had a pretty, uh, pretty much a slam dunk here. 
But those two guys said, no, nah, there's ambiguity here. Now, the other, here's the other thing about ambiguity. There's also this, you know, the underlying legal doctrine, oftentimes referred to as the canons of statutory construction, dictate that when laws, treaties, or contracts with Native people occur, if there's ambiguity in those documents, the ambiguity must be um, interpreted in favor of the Indians. And I don't use the word Indians very often, but that's how they, they call it. But it must be interpreted in favor of the Indians. So that's the federal standard for, you know, for, for, for law, not for these two guys. They said, we think there's ambiguity, even though there's no language that says there's ambiguity, and we're going to interpret that ambiguity in favor of the state. In fact, their view was, well, we think that the, uh, the exclusivity continues into the seven-year renewal period. So if the exclusivity uh, continues, then the payments must continue. Yeah, but it doesn't say that. It, it, it's simply, those words aren't in there. So what Kevin Washburn wrote in his dissenting opinion from these two guys was that they essentially rewrote the compact. They, they added both the term in terms of years of payment and the percentage that wasn't ever negotiated. And look, if the state had in its minds that they were wanted to collect another half a billion dollars or maybe even a billion dollars because they didn't know that the COVID was going to happen and everything was going to slow everything down. But honestly, this seven-year period, had it not been impeded by, by COVID and, frankly, the expansion of, of state gaming, would have been another billion dollars. Yeah. Um, it's, it'll probably end up being less than that in the overall scheme of things. But, and, but it certainly accumulated to over, over 500 million, half a billion since uh, since 2017 so what what washburn said is that if the state had any designs on collecting money you know hundreds of millions of dollars it should have been in their interest to make sure the language was in there absolutely so so again a bad a bad ruling terrible ruling a ruling that frankly i think should have been appealed to the arbitration um, you know, uh, panel. I mean, should have said, look, these guys violated federal law in making the rule. But regardless, the Seneca's, and, and one of the things that Washburn did say also was that this renewal period, especially with this changes, probably need to be reviewed by the Interior Department. And yeah. you know, he, he kind of knows a little bit about that system. And so the Seneca's, when they came out of this terrible ruling, arbitration ruling, which they really couldn't appeal the ruling, but they could appeal other things. And among the things that they were asking the federal courts to do was to defer the legality and, and the review of this compact as, as it was now being presented to the Interior Department and review whether revenue sharing that is no longer equitable, no longer a substantial benefit to the Seneca Nation, whether it's legal under the under the federal statute, that's what the Senecas wanted done. Now, if the state was so right, you would assume the state would have said, "Yeah, let's just get out of it. Let, let the Interior Department take a look at this thing, so we can be done with this." And because the Senecas said, "Look, when we've exhausted all our all our our administrative remedies here, we've been putting the money aside." And they said, "Look, we actually have a specific account separate from all of our other accounts in New York." And I think it's in Ohio or something. They said, we've set this bank account. So you can see it. You can see the money that's in there, what's going in there on a regular basis. And that's 
and that's accumulating. So even if we are still trying to fight you on this, you have no reason to be concerned that the money won't be there when we've exhausted all of our, uh, all of our challenges. And, and, you know, and that was really what the Seneca said is be assured the money's there. If things don't go our way, you know, you can take it. Mm -hmm. So that's where it was. Now, the Seneca's, did have some challenges in court and, and, uh, and they lost on all those challenges. Most of the, the court rulings were not all of the court rulings that they got basically said you committed yourself to binding arbitration. So the arbitration ruling stands, they didn't rule against the Senate because they ruled right. in favor of the arbitration. And I think that's an important distinction, but the Senecas could not get a judge who was willing to defer any part of this conversation because look, revenue sharing it's on its face was not, the the topic of discussion in the arbitration panel it was the only thing that was i mean you have to consider what is the narrowness of the scope of the of of the argument the scope right. was was it intended for or, or should, are the senate supposed to pay during the seven-year renewal period that was the scope of what was being addressed by these arbitration panels not whether revenue sharing was really legal anymore not even if and as it turns out the interior department never did review the renewal period. They never even looked at, they only, when they did review it, and that was under Gail Norton, who was the assistant secretary um, during the Bush administration. She only reviewed the 14 year period. She never reviewed what the seven year period would, would be. So there's no sign off by the interior department and there's never really been a request. And, and I'll tell you when this dispute first started up, the Seneca's, went to the interior department and said, look, we want you to review this. And, the, and this was during the Trump administration. And the interior department said, well, we would rather not get involved in the review of a compact unless both parties ask. Well, that's a little like, or actually, no, it's a lot like telling a victim of a crime that we're not going to investigate your crime unless the perpetrator of that crime agrees to, that we investigate. Exactly. I mean, the Senecas were being screwed by the state and they could not even ask the so-called agency that has that trust responsibility that I talked about. Yeah. <laughs> not, not so much here. Yeah. So there was, there was a lot of drag meat. Now, ultimately the national Indian gaming commission, which is a part of the, the, the oversight, it's not necessarily just the interior department, but it's this gaming commission. They did review certain one certain aspect associated with the, um, um, with the gaming, uh, um, with the with the revenue sharing and it wasn't even specifically to the revenue sharing what they were investigating was whether the circumstance as it exists today with both the payments to new york the long-term relationship which is now going through 21 years and the uh the level of control the state has over certain game parts of the gaming operation whether they now constitute the state having um, violated the requirement in IGRA that the nation maintain the proprietary interest of the gaming operation. Yeah. So, because that, that's, and that's what it says in the, it says in the, in IGRA that the nation must maintain the proprietary, the sole proprietary interest of the gaming operation. Now, the reason for that law in there, that law is there, or that rule is there to stop organized crime from, from creeping in, to stop, financiers from having more control over the operation um, than, than the law would allow. And to stop even gaming corporations, because when IGRA first passed, 
some of the gaming operations that existed in native ter territories were run by Bally's and by MGM and a few other gaming corporations. And it was to say, look, you can have a, um, a management agreement with those, those outfits and they can even hang their trademark on the building, but it has to be the proprietary interest of a gaming operation has to maintain with the, with the nations. Mm -hmm. So that's what that was for. It, it was, it was third parties mm -hmm. from having, gained obtained or squeezed some sort of proprietary interest out of the gaming operation yeah. and so that's what the nigc the national gaming commission investigated and in that investigation they said we have three factors and the, and the three factors are does the third party have um some control over the operation and they said, well yeah the state does but the state does because igra the indian gaming regulatory act allows for them to have that so so we we can't find them at fault for that this is the third, second factor was, well, what about long-term relationship? Is the, is the term of the relationship so long that it almost seems like they ha have controls? And they said, well, yeah, the state basically had a 14-year uh, compact with the seven-year renewal. Yeah, 21 years is a pretty long time. But we feel that these long-term gaming compacts provide stability for the native gaming operations. Which is just false. I mean, there is no stability because consider this: the the Senecas are bound by within their operation to operate their gaming in accordance to the compact. But the state, they could change their comp their their constitution. They could build more casinos. They nothing in the compact restricts the state from changing their. Um, market share and their presence in the gaming industry. There's nothing that stops that. So that's pretty problematic because it's not an equal playing field. And so the idea that this guy from NIGC said, yeah, the long-term, he goes, in fact, even so, some tribes have emptied into perpetual compacts where they are bound forever while the state can go about. I mean, one of the things I wanted to add in case you hadn't noticed, you live under a rock someplace, the state has entered into sports betting. Uh -huh. And when they first did it, you had to go into a state licensed facility to do to, to place your bets. Mm -hmm. Then they said, no, we're going to allow online. And then they said, no, we're going to allow you to have a phone app. So now you can just place a bet on your phone to the benefit of the state. So the state finds other ways to expand its uh, its presence in the gaming market, including in the Seneca's exclusivity zone. Yeah. And, but the Seneca's can't do that. I mean, they, they, they could do sports betting if you walked in, but the, the, the Seneca's couldn't offer an app on your phone to, to place a bet at the Seneca Nation's uh, casinos. Right. You know, so, so this idea that these long-term um, relationships offer stability to the, to the native gaming operation kind of refutes the whole idea that one of the factors for for a proprietary interest in a, in a facility is the, the length of, of the relationship. Yeah. The third factor was compensation. And the fact of the matter is, beyond revenue sharing, the state is a much larger beneficiary of Seneca Gaming than the Senecas are. Let me explain that, though. Yeah. I'm not even talking about revenue sharing. I'm saying every dime that comes into the Seneca Nation immediately goes back into the into the economy of Western New York. Immediately. I mean, even if it goes to the Seneca individual, 
we have gas stations and smoke shops and now we can buy weed but uh, you, you know the, the real sustainable uh, economics yeah. you got to go you're going to go to Walmart you're going to you know you're going to go to you know the, the mall you're going to go to the tops or Wegmans or whatever else every dime that comes into Seneca Nation whether it's into the nation itself through the programs mm-hmm. whether it's into the nation for other services that they provide or whether it's into the nation for, or even even into the casino for for all of the the um, it, I mean the vast majority of employees for the Seneca gaming operation are not native. I mean, I think it's like eighty or ninety percent of the employees are not native. You know, that's how many non-native folks who pay state tax, county tax, property tax. Then when they buy and sell their their cars, they pay sales. I mean, this all of this money that comes into the Seneca Nation immediately goes back into the Western, into the Western New York economy. And then you take into, into account that almost 50% of the net revenue from the gaming machines gets whisked away to Albany. And only 25% of that came back to Western New York. In that 14-year period that Seneca's paid, $1.4 billion went to the state. $400 million came back. A billion dollars left Western New York. A billion. That's with a B. Remember when Cuomo used to talk about the Buffalo billion, all this, oh, we're going to build all this stuff in Buffalo. We're going to, we've got a billion dollars committed to Buffalo. That never really quite happened. It, it turned into a, a bit of a pay to play scam. If you recall. Yeah. The only Buffalo billion was the billion that left Buffalo and it left right through the casinos to the, uh, to the state of New York, to Albany and wherever, and who knows where, where, I mean, there was supposed to be a commitment that not only the money that went to Albany was supposed to go into things like education, but the money that came back to Niagara Falls, Buffalo, and Salamanca was supposed to go into economic development, tourism mm-hmm. development. It went into filling potholes. Yeah, These, yeah. I mean, Western New York is an impoverished area. Yeah. So they didn't, this what didn't turn out to be a windfall. This became a necessity. Yeah. Niagara Falls was crying the blues big time when, uh, when they couldn't, when they thought the money was being held up. I mean, the the insults and uh and vitriol that the seneca's experienced both from the governor and from the the mayor of niagara falls was unheard of in fact when they settled that dispute back in 2013 i was asked to um to sit in on a uh, a morning show and paul deister came in and i didn't know he was going to be but that was the plan to get us both in the same room and that's (laughs) it Not the best plan, but, um, and I said, well, I think the mayor here and the governor of the state of New York owes the Seneca nation an apology. He got up, started throwing F-bombs away and stormed out, you know, saying how ridiculous it was that I was suggesting that, you know, all of the, the hate that he was spewing should have been apologized for now that you got the check, but you know, that's so, and I, and I offer some of this up because this is the relationship that the Senecas have had forever. I mean, Look, I don't, I don't, I can't tell all the history, but George Washington, when he launched the Sullivan campaigns through Cayuga and Seneca territory, he said, let them know the terror of their chastisement. Let them know the terror that we're going to make them experience. Don't accept any pleas for peace. Don't sign any peace treaties. You need to destroy them. And you need to do, do so in such a manner that they that the that they this will be felt for generations. That's what George Washington called for, and it ain't got a whole lot better since then. No, I mean, 
you, you've got 10,000 acres that was flooded out of uh, out of the Allegheny Territory for the Kinzua Dam project to save Pittsburgh from having a flooding problem. You've got the Thruway that was run through Cattaraugus here, where the where the state offered them a paltry seventy thousand dollars for that right of way, while they collected billions in tolls off of that road. You, you know, unfettered access cuts through Seneca Territory for the state's economy. There are, there's rail that goes through, there's trucks that go through. The Senecas have no say about hazardous waste or anything else. All this stuff just goes back and forth. And in fact, they even make money off of the throughway and, and, and other means for their commerce to exist. While we have to fight every, everything over taxes and tobacco and fuel and gaming and who knows what the weed fight's going to look like going forward. But this is, this is our, been our experience. We had, there was a hundred years that residential schools existed. And the one in New York, Thomas Indian School here in the Cattaraugus Territory, it was run by the state, not by the federal government. It was, and while it was initially funded by um, the state education department, it ultimately transferred its, um, uh, the authority to run that school got transferred to the Board of Charities. The Board of Charities did things like running insane asylums. They viewed Seneca women, well, Native women in general, as unfit mothers, incompetent to raise children. They took the children, and then when they took the children, they said, these children are irredeemable. Just by virtue of being Native, they are mentally deficient. That's what the state, that's how the state viewed us. So when we get to the place now with, with dealing with, with Kathy Hochul, it is not that much of a surprise that she would resort to what she, what she has done. And let me explain that. <laughs> so as we get through, come into January, the Seneca Nation leadership entered into a, a, an agreement, a verbal agreement, essentially, with the state of New York, with Kathy Hochul, saying, look, we're going to release the funds so we can start negotiating for the compact. Well, he made this public statement that he, he had done that before he had told the people, the Seneca people. And the Senecas were pissed. And they said, "Wait, no, no, we, we, want, a, we want the federal government to review this. Because th there was some belief that making the payment might have the Senecas by, uh, be violating the law. Hmm. Because if the compact wasn't legit, they were making a payment that was, you know, not they were going to get punished for it necessarily, but they were making unlaw an unlawful payment. So the NIGC investigation had come out, um, which really didn't find any fault with the state in that proprietary interest uh, part of the conversation, but it did highlight a couple of things. It said, that the renewal period was actually never reviewed by the Interior Department. Gail Norton, who was the Assistant Secretary back, you know, back in the beginning, she never reviewed the seven-year period that we're in now, and nobody had. Yeah. And they also acknowledged that the Senecas had paid a substantially larger sum of money than was ever anticipated in the revenue sharing agreement. So they overpaid, and that the revenue sharing, the exclusivity part of the the deal. Uh, seemed to be diminished over time. And, and they were referring to the Racinos and that kind of stuff and the passage of law that allowed the state to do class three gaming. So there was an acknowledgement on that. And in fact, what the author with this Tom Cunningham with the National Indian Gaming Commission said was whether the exclusivity was still worth the negotiated payment is something that requires further review. So he was even saying, 
to really evaluate the revenue sharing, there needs to be a deeper dive here than, than he was willing to do. He, he wouldn't even look at it. I mean, he only looked at that proprietary interest thing. That was, in fact, he even said in that, in his report, he said, we have never used the re proprietary interest requirement to analyze a gaming compact. In other words, we never used the, this proprietary interest requirement to hold a state accountable because it was never designed for that. It was, to, it was to protect native territories from organized crime and for vulture capitalists and, uh, and aggressive management and that kind of stuff. So, but, but he did do those acknowledgements. And so, but when that report came, Kathy Hochul said, well, there, your report said we were fine. No, it didn't really say that. And so now keep in mind this money, $560 million is sitting in this one specific account and Kathy Hochul knows it, but she didn't go after that. And you know what? Funny thing about the compact when, while the compact describes binding unappealable arbitration rulings, it does say that if there's a ruling that results in a, in a payment that's due and the prevailing party doesn't get paid, they must, use the the federal court system in the western district of new york to pursue that payment that's not what hokel did she rather than going back to federal court to seize that one account she decided no i'm going to play hardball i'm going to use a fed or a state statute and a state subpoena to freeze all seneca nation's um accounts essentially the, the, the gaming accounts but, yeah. but again, keep in mind that the sole source of public finance comes from those gaming accounts. Right. So by freezing those accounts, she froze all the money coming to the Seneca Nation, all the money going to individuals, all the money going to programs, all the money going to gaming employees, Seneca Nation employees and Seneca gaming employees, all Seneca gaming vendors, all Seneca gaming contractors. She interrupted the livelihoods of what really might result as, could have resulted in seven to 8,000 people. Because of not just the employees, but because of the vendors and, and right, uh, yeah, those employees. and all the public services that depend on that funding too. Yeah, all, all of it. So that's what she, she I mean, this is a little bit like ransomware. You know, I mean, think about what ransomware is, right? Somebody takes your IT and they oh, lock yeah. it up and they yep. say, pay us and we'll unlock it. Well, that's, she did it with their bank accounts. She said, I'm locking up all your money and you're going to give me the money or We'll wait it out. Well, how how many days do you think the Seneca Nation could go with? I mean, they, they still have a gaming operation to run. They still have payouts to do. They have all kinds of stuff they have to do. And the Senecas knew that they only they really could only exist for uh, for a handful of days. She made this announcement on a Friday, and by Monday the Senecas gave in, and they said, "All right, we'll uh, we'll release the funds." They didn't have to release the funds. She could have gone after them directly, but she instead held them hostage for the ransom payment. And, and I don't think it's hyperbole. I really don't. I don't think it's hyperbole at all to describe what Kathy Hochul did. And keep in mind, Cuomo never did this. Mm -hmm. And we all, most people can pretty much agree that you know, Cuomo is pretty much a jerk. Yeah. He never even did this, but Kathy Hochul did. And then to make it even worse, she extorts this money out of the Seneca Nation and then turns around and tells Western New York, I'm going to use this money for the Bill Stadium. I'm going to give the state, the, the, the municipalities their cut. So it was $560 million. She, you know, she was going to give up the you know, $140 million. And then the $420 million left, 
she was going to use that as a bargaining chip for the for the voices that were going to raise hell down a uh, downstate about her commitment, which was which was over six hundred million dollars from the state. Not that's not counting the two hundred million out of the county, but eight hundred million dollars worth of taxpayer uh, funding. She says, "Well, no, I'm going to I'm going to defer some of that with the uh, with this money I just took from the Senecas." So, in her attempt to become the hometown hero of Western New York, and she even made that comment. She said, well, this money was generated in Western New York and it's going to stay in Western New York. You know that while you were sitting there as the lieutenant governor, you weren't concerned about a billion dollars leaving Western New York. Now, all of a sudden you do for one reason. You had your budget fight going on and you knew that, that you weren't going to get the support downstate to commit $600 million worth of state funding to this, uh, to this uh, bill stadium. Keep in mind, that there's two larger market football teams that play under the New York banner, the Jets and the, and the Giants. They don't have a stadium in New York. They couldn't get a stadium in New York. And there they could have built one stadium for two big market teams, and they didn't do it. Why? Because the appetite wasn't there in downstate. It, the appetite wasn't there anywhere. So, so they play in New Jersey. So, so <laughs> the, the, the short phrase is, that the um, Hochul's heist gave the Pagula, Pagula's mula. <laughs> so, so what she did is she heisted this money from the, from the Senecas and then essentially gives it to the Western New York's billionaire, the guy who owns the Bills and the Bandits and the, and the Sabres, the guy who's gotten millions of dollars worth of tax abatements to do some of his so-called investments in Western New York. Yeah. And somebody who's only committed like three hundred million towards this one point four billion dollar uh, stadium, which he essentially stands to make back on day one. Yeah. They're gonna they're gonna sell um, uh, tickets or, or 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 passes or licenses for the seats. He's expected to make his money back on day one. His three hundred million dollars back on day one. And. Hochul says, yeah, well, we're going to get their $600 million back in, uh, in 25 years. 25 freaking years? So that's what Hochul's promise was. So she takes his money. Now, and here's, here's another thing that's, that's kind of ironic about this. You know, the Senecas really need to diversify their portfolio. So had there ever been a conversation with the Senecas to say, would you be interested in investing in the Bill Stadium? Yeah. The Senecas probably would have said, yeah, we'll take a share in that. Yep. We'll, put up, we'll put up half a billion dollars for that. Yep. And in fact, Niagara Falls, they want to build an event center up there. You know what? We'll take a share in that too. Yep. Because our gaming market is not going to expand. If anything, it's going to be reduced because the state is all in on gaming. They're going to build three more casinos someplace. They're going to continue to expand gaming, whether it's through electronic gaming. Look, if the state is willing to allow gaming on a telephone, yeah. to their benefit. What's to stop them from doing slot machines on a telephone or lottery ticket sales on a telephone? Yep. And the Senecas have no, no way to stop them from doing that. I mean, they, you, if the Senecas even wanted to negotiate some prohibition of state gaming expansion, it would be like playing whack-a-mole. They'd, they'd have to get a crystal ball to know right. what the state's next maneuver would be because the way they got wordsmithed in the original compact where words like exclusivity sounded good, but turns out they really paid $1.4 billion for something the state couldn't do anyway. I yeah. mean, it was 
it is one of the biggest screwings that native people have ever experienced. I mean, look for all of the land loss, for all of the, you know, uh, you know, the encroachment through way and, you know, uh, Kinzua and everything else, all of the rights of way that go through native territory. I mean, the, you're not, you, it's not just a throughway. five and 20 go through Seneca territory. Yeah. Um, route 17, all these U S routes go through Seneca territory. And the Senecas don't get anything out of that right. other than they don't even get the privilege of driving on the thruway without paying. They got to yeah. pay tolls or, or, or fight the state over it. I mean, it's, it's absurd on so many different levels. Yeah. I mean, there, there are literally bomb trains. If you're not familiar with a, what a bomb train is, it's these uh, black rail cars that carry Balkan crude from the Dakotas right through Western New York. Mm-hmm. And it goes right towards Albany and then down into New Jersey, and it's all for export. So they actually have hazardous materials flowing through Seneca Terra, and Senegas don't have a, have a word to say about it. So their commerce runs unimpeded yeah. while we get burdened with every, on, on every turn. So again, for me, and there's no other way to characterize what Hochul did other than you know compare it to things like, like extortion. I mean, when you freeze the accounts, and, you know, and there had to be some reason other than uh, you know, part of the reason obviously had to do with uh, with getting this thing done expeditiously because she was up against the wall with her budget. Right. But for some reason, she wanted the Senegas to give her the money. Yeah. Take the money. And so she strong armed them. She strong armed them using. St- I mean, look, that statute. It was actually designed for organized crime. It was designed for somebody who had a fine that was due a penalty due to the state and refused to pay that's what this whole so she treated this as if she was just going after a company this wasn't a company this is a nation this is a people yeah a nation that's supposed to be a sovereign nation but clearly there's sovereignty there well and look the challenges is you know for for much of this is that the seneca's again sole source of public finance comes from um, patronage outside their nation. Mm-hmm. They rely on New Yorkers and others to come play their games and you know buy their gas and, and all that stuff. Um, and they do it with uh, with U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is the vulnerability. And if this, if you enter into any kind of agreement that has the state potentially charging you or accruing a charge, now the die has been cast. I mean, Hochul now it's normal right if you know if if any time the state says you owe money they can just freeze an account they've done it once and they got away with it yep. and and this is where you know whether allies really step up or not i, I have to re re-emphasize what i said at the beginning there is nothing in the federal statute that allows the state to force a payment out of the seneca people and for those who think well the state gave them permission no the state didn't give the seneca's permission to do gaming in fact, the federal government didn't give them permission. Native people could do gaming. Yeah. And that scared the federal government. And in fact, mm-hmm. after a, case, a Supreme Court case uh, was ruled upon in, out in California, the Cabazons versus the state of California, and the Supreme Court had to acknowledge that, look, there's nothing to stop Native people from doing gaming. If the state's doing gaming, how can they tell the Native, Native people they can't do it? Right. So, so that was essentially the ruling. And even that, is a bit of an encroachment because it actually suggests that, well, we can only do gaming if the state's doing gaming, which 
wasn't isn't really i mean even that i think was already grabbing something from us right passion yeah well and 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 again so this is the way it gets viewed nationally so when they passed the indian gaming regulatory act which we weren't even a part of the of the conversation over the one thing it did for seneca for for any native territory was the problem the reason we didn't have a proliferation of gaming in the way uh we've had since igra was the leverage that the set the states had was not over us it was over mm-hmm. vendors so if we wanted to buy slot machines who were we going to buy it from right because the state and the federal government could have all easily told a vendor well you can lose your license to uh to sell in uh, new jersey and, and nevada you can mm-hmm. lose your license so although we had the right to do gaming we couldn't build the machines ourselves mm-hmm. and and frankly we we couldn't really sell finance to do a half a billion dollar facility. Right. We built Ingle Halls, right. and we did have expansion of gaming. And we were in a constant battle with the state and the federal government for all of those years leading up to the Cabazon ruling. Mm-hmm. And when the Cabazon ruling came, I think the states realized, look, we're not sure that we can go after vendors anymore. Right. So they said we're going to create an underlying federal statute where none existed before. We're going to whip it out of thin air. And now every vendor will know if they do it according to this law and if the gaming operation is conducted according to this law, then their, their business is secure. So IGRA didn't do as much for us directly as it did for the vendors and for the financiers and for the consultants and right. for, for everybody that we relied on to make gaming happen. Now it did make our gaming more possible because without those things, it would have been difficult. So when people ask, well, well, then why did you guys enter into these gaming compacts in the first place? If, if you could have done gaming before, well, that's the reason. And, and, and it's no small reason. I mean, I can't diminish that. And I also can't hold the Seneca nation or anybody else um, in some sort of judgment because they entered into, into a compact. But what I will say is they got played badly. They got played badly in their, in, in their compact. Like I said, they paid for 14 years for something the state couldn't do anyway. And, and now as the Senecas still pursue what is now an interior department led by a native person, Deb Hallen from Laguna Pueblo, who, and she isn't just from Laguna, Laguna Pueblo. She, she actually worked for them. And you know what she worked on? gaming of course so she was actually involved in some of the debate and the conflict between laguna pueblo and the state of uh, new mexico mm-hmm. so she knows this issue kevin washburn knows this issue kevin washburn was actually hired by the the biden administration as a part of the transition team for this interior department mm-hmm. so look i've been as critical of anybody as anybody of deb hallen because I find I frankly do not stand up and cheer when a native person find gets themselves elected to to federal or state office or gets appointed to a, a position because I feel like we lose one. Mm-hmm. I think every time we lose somebody who who has leadership qualities to run for office, now she, now she's beholding to the white people who elected her. There is not a single native person, not Deb Highland when she was a congresswoman or Sharice David as a congresswoman in um, in uh, Kansas. White people voted for them. 
Native people, we don't represent a big enough voting block to get anybody elected. So who are they beholding to? I, look, regardless of where they're from, Deb Haaland does not work for us. She works for, for Joe Biden, and she serves at, at the pleasure of Joe Biden. So is she going to step up? Look, I would expect her to. And, and look, and we're not asking for a special consideration. We just wanted to do a damn job. Yeah, that's it. That none of the interior secretaries have done for over 30 freaking years. That's yeah. our problem. Enforce the law against the states who are abusing the law. Yeah. These, these revenue sharing agreements are oppressive. None more so than the, than the ones the Seneca's the one the Seneca's have. Yeah. I mean, up in Aquasasne, the St. Regis Tribal Council, they pay 25% to the state too of the net slot drop. For what? Who the hell is going to build a casino up in the North Country? Right. I mean, sure, Aquasasne is going to build them because it's their territory. But what gaming operator is saying, oh, I know a good place to put uh, put a casino. Let's go where there's nobody that lives there. Right, right, right. <laughs> Let's build in downtown Messina. Yeah, that's going to really make a bunch of money. I mean, <laughs> they pay 25% for nothing. The Oneidas pay 25% too. They didn't in the beginning. You know why they ended up paying 25%? because they were getting squeezed over land claims because the land they built their casino on was being challenged, whether it was legal for the, for that casino to even exist there, because they, they bought land in, in a claim area that was never fully designated by the interior department or anybody else as, as quote unquote Indian country. So they were being squeezed by the feds and the state over, over land claims. So they made their deal. Yep, the state's going to not shut down Turning Stone Casino, but we're going to limit how much land you can acquire, and you're going to pay us revenue sharing, even though they have one of those racetrack casinos. Right. Line of sight from them. Vernon Downs. I mean, you, if you're in the upper floor of the, uh, the hotel at Turning Stone, you can see Vernon Downs. That's how close they are. And yet they still pay 25% for an exclusivity. So... It this is how bad native people and and who built the again who built the gaming market for the state of New York? Native territories did. None more so than the Senecas. They built the market and they softened up the constituency so the state could go go ahead and uh, and get, have a public referendum that yielded what they wanted, their ability to do gaming. But you know what? Today as I sit here, New York state continues to expand gaming even without more casinos. They they're doing it with sports betting. And who knows what the what the next greatest idea is going to be? Right. You, you may be playing, uh, you know, you may be gambling on your television and your and your computer and your and your and your phone. I mean, we don't know. And and like I said, there's no telling, you know, what new game, what new expansion of gaming is going to happen. And not to mention the fact that the market's somewhat saturated anyway. Pennsylvania's got gaming. Ohio's got gaming. Canada's had gaming. Look, part of the reason. The state of New York was chomping at the bit for the Senecas to do gaming in Niagara Falls was because of all, all that money that was going across the river, cutting across those bridges to Canada. So they wanted the Senecas to do gaming because they wanted to keep that money in Western New York and maybe even draw a few a little bit in from, from the Canadian gamblers. So you can't downplay or dismiss the economic engine that the Seneca Nation has been for Western New York. Yeah, for all the propping up and the praise that Terry and Kim Pagula get for for them taking their oil and gas money and you know and getting a, a bargain basement price for the Bills team uh, and and a, and a hockey team that still ranks last in the league. Um, yeah, for all of that, 
they get praised. I mean, Byron Brown, when he does his, his, the state of the city address every year, he sings the praises of Terry and uh, Kim Pagula. Never mentions the Senecas. Never mentioned. Okay. How the, and look, when I suggested the Senecas may have been willing to invest in the Bill Stadium, keep in mind that beyond what the Senecas do in terms of their 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 the economic impact of just life benefiting Western New York and the the revenue sharing, they've they put money into the hospitals, including the hospital up in Niagara Falls. They funded the, the Culinary Institute in, uh, in Niagara Falls. They have been sponsors of every social and entertainment event that has taken place in Western New York since they opened the doors. Now, we could argue, yeah, but that's just marketing and advertisement. No, it's putting money into every event that takes place, every concert, every sporting event, every uh, sports team, Every single one, the Seneca Nation is a sponsor for, yeah. and and they have been, and not just here. We're talking about, but you know, out Darien Lake and and other places. This is how much the Senecas have put their brand out there and their dollars to back it up in every event that happens in Western New York. And frankly, they don't get any acknowledgement, they don't get any credit, and they sure don't get any consideration. No, it, it it honestly seems to me, I have to wrap us up here in a second, but I, I feel like you've done such an amazing job of outlining the way in which this is absolutely par for the course operating of how the United States has treated Native American individuals from the very beginning, which is which is with the utmost disrespect and treating Native American people as a property. I, I was reading, um, I can't remember... I think it was the constitution or it was the the like language around when people were when um like suffrage and equal voting rights was starting to happen when when uh slaves were freed right and it said something like uh, about black people being free but still not native americans still not and i think there's some language in there about savages um it, it's like we, we're, we're, in the we're in the Declaration of Independence. We were referred to as merciless Indian savages in the Declaration of Independence. Yep. And it's like, well, well we're going to, okay, so we'll, we'll free the enslaved Black people, but we're still going to, we're in a lot of ways, Native people are still, you know, like owned by the government. And we have this illusion, like we always talk about the Seneca Nation, we talk about Native American sovereignty, but in, in what way has sovereignty ever been afforded, ever, in, in, in any way? And this is just another extension of that same sort of American ethos of just using Native Americans. The, one of the problems is that we are not recognized as the people we once were. Um, even the word indigenous, and, and you know, this was told to me by by somebody who I respect a lot, by a guy by the name of Stephen Newcomb, who really did great work on the doctrine of Christian discovery. But Stephen Newcomb said the word indigenous, as defined by the international community, really frames our existence within the context of, of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And what it means is that we are descendants of the people who existed prior to colonialism. And I say, no, I'm not a descendant of Mohawk people. I am a Mohawk person. I am those people. And when, when you realize that on every turn, that every politician, every institution, the way we are taught about in school, and, and, and whether it's grade school, high school, or college, we are still being considered a people who have been forced into assimilation. Yeah. And that, that our sovereignty and our distinction 
was successfully diminished, whether it was through law, residential schools, murder, depopulation, as it was called. I mean, so our existence right now is mired in all of this identity conflict. I mean, we, we, you've got school white kids going to school who graduate calling themselves Indians because that was the school mascot. And they create the image of what they think we look like, what we sound like, what we act like. And so this, these other stakeholders in framing our identity are not, it's not usually us. I mean, one of the things that we get painted as, oh, they're all rich. They have casinos. Well, the vast majority of native casinos don't make much money and they are not enriching individuals. And that's one of the things that I I've got to push back on, on every white person who reports about the Senate commission. Well, yeah, those, those guys on council, they're all getting paid. The, the money that comes from those casinos go into the, again, the sole source of public finance for the entire nation. Yeah. There are people who get paid because people work for the Seneca nation, but to suggest that, that, that it's all corrupt and that only a few benefit every Seneca gets money from, uh, from the, the gaming operations. It's not a lot of money, but distributed over seven or 8,000 people. It's a lot of money. And that's the, that's the enrollment. So, yeah, shame on anybody who wants to condemn what the Seneca's do with their money, because I'll tell you, whatever they do, it comes right back to Western New York immediately. Yes. And, and there's no way to get around that. And and I challenge some economic student from UB or from Jamestown Community College or from Buff State or Damon College or whatever, whatever. I challenge them to do an analysis on what a billion dollars leaving Western New York over over 14 years has done and, and how much of a hit that placed on, on the Western New York economy. And look, taking that money and throwing it into a, into a, a, a stadium for a football team owned by billionaires who could fund it themselves if they had to, or certainly could borrow the money. Yep. They don't look, they're worth between six and $7 billion and they couldn't peel off a billion dollars themselves to fund their own casino or their casino, their, their own stadium. I mean, it, there's, there's just an absurdity to it that, that, that defies even, you know, fully addressing it. Yeah. I think that's it. It, it. I think this is what I'm hearing from, from white people who I know to be people who care, right. Um, is the problem is that they're just now seeing this, right. And they're like, holy crap, this is an injustice. And so I think part of the process that needs to happen, uh, speaking specifically of people who geographically live near the Seneca nation is you need to give a shit a little bit more about the history of your neighbors, because this didn't come out of left field. This is another brick in a wall that's been built to subjugate Native American people from sovereignty and self-actualization since the beginning of this country. Well, and if you think that there's some huge benefit to being Native per, uh, uh, person uh, economically, keep in mind, we can't get a bank loan. We, we can't get a bank loan. We, we can't um, get a mortgage for a house on our territory unless it's through a Seneca Nation program. For a business, we can't borrow from a bank unless it's based on something that we collateralize. Anybody else... Our land can't collateralize um, a bank loan. So there are things that we are denied that people have no idea. I mean, things like insurances are more difficult. There's so much of our lives that are different because we don't exist in the same 
economic system that you do. Right. Look, we do share some things. And, you know, are we part of the, the capitalistic system? Yeah, we are. But, but, but we don't have the same, we, we can't play that game by the same rules that you guys can. And, and look, some people will say, yeah, but you have, a, you have all these advantages. Every advantage, every regulatory advantage we have is challenged by New York State and oftentimes the federal government. So, yes, we do believe that we're sovereign. But does New York State believe it? No. Does the federal government believe it? No, they think we are mere descendants yep. of a sovereign people. And therein lies the problem. Absolutely. That that's um that's I'm 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 gaining a more of a sense of the magnitude of that as you say it because the the surest way to you know remove a population or, or a section of the population is to convince people that they don't exist, right? Uh, well, to, can't to make them. Um, we, do you know that the Iroquois Nationals couldn't play a lacrosse game in Manchester, England, because the only way that both England and uh, or the UK and the United States would allow them to travel is if they got U.S. or Canadian passports. So we couldn't even travel on our own travel document. This is the level. And look, here's something that I'm, I'm going to say, and I haven't said it yet in this program, but we cannot hide from the fact that this is overt racism. And I know, oh, there he goes, that John Cain, he had to, he had to play the race card. Oh, it look, is. When we hear conversations about critical race theory, keep in mind what critical race theory is supposed to be. You talk about intersectionality, right? It's supposed to be the intersection of racism and law or policy. There are no greater examples. And look, I know there's plenty of examples of, you know, in, in terms of the racism that black people have experienced, and I'm not diminishing any of that, but most of that is implied. The laws that were passed for native, you know, to, to, take something away from us, overtly express Indian gaming regulatory. They even call us Indians. They can't even call us what we, what we are really called. They have to use words that they made up. So the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act took from us. You know, do you know how um, residential schools got funded at the, uh, at the federal level? It was through a, a, um, uh, a law called the Civilization Act. That, and that was passed in the early 1800s. And it was to uh, it was to a lot money to force assimilation upon Native people, and ultimately create not only the funding mechanisms but the authority to create these residential schools that forced Christianity and indoctrination on Native children. Took the children away from our parents. They, in 1924, they passed a law where called the Indian Citizenship Act, where the where the Senate and the House declared that native people were, were here by U.S. citizens. You know, that's considered a war crime yeah. to denationalize, to say, to say we're going to take your national character and we're going to impose ours upon you. That's what happened in 1924. I hear native people say, oh, well, we didn't get to be U.S. citizens in 1924. Look, we never got to be U.S. citizens. It was imposed upon us. And many of us, myself included, I reject it. I don't consider myself a U.S. citizen. I don't hate white people i don't hate americans but i don't have to be you and, and and the problem is that we are not the same and and it's not that we aren't the same from a humanity standpoint but our our identity is different than yours it is it's it, it is national and cultural character but it's also this idea that i am not 
nothing has ever happened in an American history where we transferred our sovereignty to the United States, where we where we gave ourselves up to be U.S. citizens. The fact they passed a law in 1924 didn't make it so. They just they declared it. Well, you can declare all kinds of things, but if I don't accept that, then I, you can't force it. And and I can't have a conversation with a congressman or a senator, a state senator or a state assembly person, and without spending way too long explaining that no, I'm not part of your constituency. Mm-hmm. I'm Mohawk and I live on Seneca territory. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but which uh, Seneca territory is in, in our uh, in in our um, uh, legislative district? No, it's not. You may have it on the maps, but we're not part of the town of Brand. We are not part of. You, you, uh, Brian Higgins's district, or you know, or or if you're a, a U.S. senator, no, Kirsten Gillibrand, you're not our senator. You're the senator fr- from New York. You know, Chuck Schumer, you're not our senator. You don't represent us, but you do represent the state that is doing in in the, in the United States Senate. You represent the countries and the states that are doing stuff to us. Mm-hmm. So. To the extent that I want to have a conversation with you, it's because of the of what you do represent, which isn't us, but right. but you do impact us. Yeah, that's so massively important, and I really hope anybody who's watching understands that because uh, I think what you just said that really uh, like kind of highlighted it the best for me was not being able to travel without a U.S. or, or um, you know Canadian passport. Like that's that's. A reality that that I wouldn't have thought of, right? But that's just one of the many ways in which you're different. And not we're not saying qualitatively, and we're also not saying that we differ because we're you know we're different. I'm not saying we're better. I'm not. I'm not for. I'm not suggesting superiority. Right. Not a qualitative thing. No. No, But you are. Your experience is distinctly different than mine. And if I'm going to be a good neighbor. I need to know these things and I need to care about these things because and other- I'm not suggesting the racism that we experience is worse than what other people experience. Right. I'm just that it exists and oftentimes it's different. Yeah. And, and what makes it worse is that it's acceptable. I mean, it's, it's about, there's 120 schools to 150 schools in New York state alone where white kids get to run around, call themselves Indians. Mm-hmm. They can put headdresses on. They can't wear blackface in school. But they can wear red face in school. So the unique racism that we experience is because what has been so socially acceptable. This idea that, you know, that we, we can be mocked and that we can that our definition is not, we are not allowed to define ourselves. Mm-hmm. Others want to do it. Kathy Hochul wants to define us in a certain way. So when she does something that is this egregious. You have to understand why she thinks it's okay, because she thinks that she has the superiority to do these, to force us to to bend to her will. I mean, that's the definition of of racism. Racism is about power. It isn't about skin color. It's about power and the sense that you have an inequality in terms of superiority, inferiority. And you look... You can still like somebody and be, and be racist towards them. If you think you're, that you're, you're above them, if you think that they are beneath you, you could, I mean, I don't know, Thomas Jefferson might have really liked Sally Hemings. I mean, <laughs> but it was still considered rape if you can uh, to have sex with a slave. Yep. 
Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, John, I have to thank you so much. I could talk to you for quite literally, or just listen to you for quite literally 10 more hours and still be hearing something new every minute of those. Uh, but I'd love to wrap us up. I know you have some great efforts that are already ongoing and I would love to signal boost them for a second. Uh, so where can people follow you if they want to follow your work and, and, and backfill uh, with some of the, the knowledge that you've already put out there? I have a YouTube channel, which is called Let's Talk Native TV. Um, and you can subscribe to that channel. I've got not only do some of my um, radio shows, and my podcasts, which I'll explain, um, show up on there. But if you scroll down, I have a lot of short form videos. So in eight minutes to 10 minutes, you can really learn a lot about Columbus or about the mascot issue or about, you know, the, the court system or the, some of this gaming stuff. One of the, one of the videos that I did on IGRA was actually used in a uh, in one of the colleges in the southwest uh, that teaches native gaming. You know, okay. one of the professors used it, and so so my YouTube channel is something that I would advise people. So look, it's it's just called Let's Talk Native TV. I also do a podcast called Let's Talk Native, and I'm on all the 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 most popular platforms. So you can just search Let's Talk Native with John Kane, and it'll come up. Uh, iTunes, Spotify, you know, TuneIn, whatever. Um, I, I, so that's a podcast. I used to do one every week. Now it, it could vary. I mean, and so I won't say what the schedule is for a new show. I do it based on events that are, that's going on, but I do a weekly radio show that, that airs live in New York on WBAI in New York city, and then re airs on Friday. That's on Thursdays uh, at three o'clock. And then on Fridays at, at two o'clock, in Washington, D.C., it airs on WPFW, and it's called Resistance Radio with John and Regan. Um, and that's, you know, again, Resistance Radio is geared towards the market, the radio market. Uh, Let's Talk Native is, is really geared more towards, uh, towards Native advocacy to Native people. But nobody's eavesdropping if, if they listen to listen to the show and you know again one is a weekly show but the radio show resistance radio that goes up as a podcast as well you can search that by going looking for resistance radio with john and regan um and again on all the you know it'll show up on one of the podcast platforms and of course like with any other podcast you can subscribe and then you'll get notifications every time a new one comes up um and and i've done been doing this for for quite a few years now um i i think my i've been doing radio for over a decade i was like wait i think i just lost you for a second so um all right so last question that i like to finish up and ask everybody is if there's one thing that you could say that you would want people who are watching to leave this uh this moment this sort of digital space with what would you want to leave folks with there needs to be a much greater effort put into educating yourselves about who we are and what we've experienced historically, because what happens is we get played historically we're, we are siloed. And they say, well, yeah, the Seneca is there. They got this gaming fight going on, but they don't consider it within the context of, the, of a throughway fight or a tax fight. You know, one of the greatest examples of this, which is more broadly uh, broad than just us here is Abraham Lincoln gets praised for the Emancipation Proclamation. That became law uh, on January 1st uh, in 1863. Okay. A week before that was the largest mass execution in the history of the United States. Okay. 38 Dakota were hung in Mankato, Minnesota on one massive gallows. 
that the execution order was signed by Abraham Lincoln. That execution took place the day after Christmas in 1862. The idea that we can talk about the Emancipation Proclamation and ignore the fact that a week prior to that, 38 Dakota were hung by the neck. And they were hung for fighting back on the Homestead Act that Lincoln signed into law in the beginning of 1862. So if you're only going to talk about the Sioux Wars mm-hmm. or the Lakota Wars or the Plains Indian the fight and not understand what the fight was over, if you're, if you're going to only frame Lincoln as the emancipator and not frame him as the executioner, he signed the execution order for the largest mass execution in the history of the United States. And there's example after example after example. People want to praise Teddy Roosevelt for, for, for national parks. Well, who do you think he drove off of those national parks first? Yep. And he was a white supremacist yep. who thought that these, these beautiful spaces need to be saved for the, for the white elite. And he said that he, while he doesn't necessarily agree that the only good Indian is a dead Indian, he believed that nine out of 10 were, and he wouldn't want to look too closely at the 10th. That's, that's a quote from him, a little paraphrase, but that's a quote from him. Yeah. So if we're, if we're never going to look at, view our history outside of the silos that we're placed in, then you're never really going to understand what it is we're fighting for or why, we, why we're fighting. Yeah, that's, that is a fantastic summation. And I think more than a summation, it's a challenge and it's a call to everybody who's watching and certainly to myself. So John, I have to thank you so much for your time. I know you're an incredibly busy person and I know it's no small labor to, to sort of like put all this out there, but I appreciate your times and your, your time and your effort. And I thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to speaking to you at any and every juncture in the future. Well, maybe uh, you're only an only and sometime we'll, we'll run into each other. We'll make it happen. I don't get my hair cut much. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Everybody else who's been watching, this has been conversations uh, where we do regular and intentional spiritually minded conversations about life, beliefs, and the intersection of the two. And the single most important facet is that everybody's agency matters in this conversation. Uh, and thank you, John, for bringing that to us today. Uh, blessings to you on your day. I hope you have great travels and we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. This has been the Conversations Podcast. Thank you so much for joining. If you have any questions or comments or just want to get involved, feel free to join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Conversations Official on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. We're available on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining the conversation.